0: Welcome to the Come Follow Me Weekly Wisdom Podcast. My goal is to deepen your faith in and love for Jesus Christ and His Gospel. You can best support these podcasts by purchasing one of my books, The Divine Nature and His Voice, The Teachings of the Old and New Testament. These books can be purchased on Amazon or by visiting my website, www.unfoldingthescriptures.com. Thank you. So the topic I wanted to talk about today comes from Revelation 12, verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought against his angels. What things are worth fighting for? What things are worth going to war for? What would you be willing to die for? Very heavy questions. Uh, It's a topic that is quite difficult to approach. Uh, as I was preparing this, I thought, "Oh, is this something I want to share?" It's kind of early in this podcast. You're gonna hit some heavy ideas in here. Uh, the is it the the concept is perhaps it's the necessity of war, which would be a terrible idea to think of. You know, when we look at some of the great success of Christianity, it would be the um, expansion of peace across the earth. Uh, I think some of it in order to avoid the naive millennial mindset we have to actually take a second and look at how did we achieve peace there is this grand belief that if we just let everything be everyone would be at peace and you have to realize that actually is a very strong belief right now in western civilization i think it's one of the great adversarial ideas that we are confronting Perhaps one of the great ideas that is so afflicting many millennials in this generation and robbing them of their faith. They genuinely believe that if we just removed all of culture, removed all of our past, our history, all of our religious ideals, our values, then we would be at peace. The only reason we have war, the only reason we've had these very dramatic and tragic events occurring is because of value. It's a very deep philosophical idea of why do we have war and why do we have conflict. So the word war in Greek is polemos, and the best translation is war. I wouldn't actually lessen the term by using some of its other uses of polemos would be battle or strife. The ultimate idea of war is war is kind of the grand telos of a battle or a strife. We hope to be able to resolve our conflicts without, you know, a violent warfare, and the shedding of blood. And the way we've been able to accomplish that in Western civilization for the most part is we've been able to have forums such as debate and discussion where we actually war with our words and not with guns and fists and swords and things like that. But the reason why I, believe, I I want to focus on this verse of war in heaven and actually drive in so much the concept of war, because it fits into place of one of the grand realities of existence. A fundamental reality of mortal existence is a warlike state. Wars repeatedly showing up in history there's conflict in our daily life, there's ongoing conflict in the world, and there's internal conflict as well. And so to, to look at reality outside of a context where there isn't a conflict and there isn't some sort of warfare is, in my opinion, extremely naive. So the fact that we have this conflict would... Back in the question of why, why do we have the conflict, and what does it arise from? So in order to answer this question, we get to one of the great questions of the function of religion and what religion is. Today we live in a world that is predominantly materialistic, and they view religious concepts and teachings and principles within a materialistic perspective, because that's the predominant perspective of our day. However, is religion designed as a materialistic perspective of the world or is it a different perspective of the world? When I try to define materialistic, it is material. So you're looking at atoms, you're looking at quarks, you're looking at molecules, elements, organs, tissues, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, you know, all of these materials. and You could even then break them down into things like chair, bed, wall, table. You can obviously see what's directly in front of me. And, you know, there is a lot of power that we've acquired in Western civilization by our attempts to honestly describe and look at the world as it is. However, material is not the predominant Realm that we live in, it's only half of the world. So half of our of our existence is material, and I would actually say the lesser part of the world is material because you know it it gives us more of a background for us to to do the actual living. The actual living that occurs is in a completely different realm. Now this realm has many different phrases and names. We can call it the transcendent you can call it the spiritual, you can call it the psychological. Fundamentally, this realm is not designed to focus on what things are in any materialistic sense. Rather, it is focused on how we should act. How we should act, what we should do, and the meaning of things. It is a realm in which narrative occurs. It is a realm in which there is value. So if you are looking at things solely materialistically, there is no value. I say that again, if we look at things purely materialistically, there is no value. There's who, you know, we can give things names, but to ascribe any type of meaning, significance, behind any type of material, object, carbon, hydrogen, you could even bring this into larger things, the earth, a tree, a lion, a person, Dave, John, Sally, Jane, What? What you? if you're just looking at them as material, there is no value. There's nothing that actually distinguishes one thing from another in terms of their value. It's all this completely neutral playing field. And so the idea is if we extract value from things, then we would have peace. Well, doctrinally, the way that we would look at this is... We have the context here of Revelation twelve seven, the idea that there is war and conflict in heaven, but also this gets expanded in Second Nephi where we have the opposition in all things. It's not that we would go to a place of peace, because peace itself has an inherent value and significance in it. It would basically be going into a place of nothingness. <laughs> we would be experiencing the nightmare described in the never-ending story, the nothing, so that would be pretty terrible. But but there is this horrible conflation that has occurred within modern philosophy that suggests, look, if we just purely adopt a materialistic perspective of the world, then we will have peace. We'll have nothing but compassion, love, peace, sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. That is a terrible, terrible assumption in life. What they're what they're doing is, hey, you know, all those grand values that we've been able to extract through religious ideals over the last millennia, well, maybe we can just assume that all of the good things will just naturally emerge and grow. If we can just slay religion, take that away and remove it, then all we'll have is the good. The reality is... You know, if you slay all significance and meaning, you'll take away good and bad and you'll just be left with nothing. This grand nihilistic whole where there is no action, there's no life, there's no movement, and all things basically die. You have that option if you're going to destroy meaning and value. The, I, it's not even worth really driving any more of the philosophical discussion because it's better just to say, if you look at a human being... It is impossible for a human being to escape the spiritual domain in which he lives. Human beings are living in a world of action. That's the world in which we live. That's a world in which our consciousness actually inhabits. It doesn't seem to be so dramatically concerned with the pillow or the wall or this oxygen molecule. It seems to be concerned with the meaning of things. Who are you? Where are you at in life? Where do you want to be in life? Where should you want to be in life? What should you strive for in life? What things have significance? What things have meaning? That's the primary world in which we inhabit, and that is a spiritual world, and it is separate from the materialistic. So when we're looking at the idea of war in heaven, we have to look at this not so much from the materialistic perspective, which a critic of religion would use to distort the teachings, because most of the distortions you'll see from critics of religion is they have this forced materialistic perspective, and they're trying to force the spiritual domain into the material, and it just doesn't work. And the one thing that we can agree on is that as you do that, you just basically run into errors. As as people... Try to force the spiritual into the material, what they end up doing is they're saying, oh, this doesn't work here, therefore it's not true. We would just look at that and be like, yes, we know that's not true because that whole domain that we're looking at is not the primary domain in which our religious teachings are focused on. It is a spiritual realm. It is a realm of narrative and a realm of value and meaning. So all of that is kind of a necessary precursor to understanding the concept of war in heaven the most simple conclusion to draw from this is we cannot escape conflict. We cannot escape conflict. It is inevitable. It is sown into your being. It is sown into our existence. There is war. And to deny that is a tremendously harmful thing, and we're starting to see the consequence of that in our society today, as we see a great amount of millennials just. their religious values. They're doing this because there is a tremendous feeling of resentment towards culture, towards structure, whatever form it takes. So if you were in a Latter-day Saint Church of Jesus Christ culture, it's going to be targeted towards that. But anything that's related to Western civilization and the values of the past and the the bedrock of christianity that we have in the americas it's very zeroed in on that they the resentment is for all of the errors and all of the flaws and they say everything that is wrong in existence is due to our culture and there 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 is a grain of truth to that that because of our because of the inadequacies in our culture because of the inadequacies in our religious conceptualization that there has been error. However, they have completely and erroneously discarded all of the good in that thing. And all they do is they they bring in a huge microscope to focus in on the the errors and the faults of the culture. And and we could say this and use this as an analogy for the individual because it's worth looking at the individual to kind of help reconcile the problem that we're seeing. But it's like taking an individual and just focusing on everything wrong with them and then expanding that and then making the conclusion that that is the whole individual it's actually a very satanic process that you see undergoing there as opposed to the opposite which is identifying the good and being grateful for the good of the culture that we have so what what we see as well as that philosophy that i brought up that the belief that look if we can just discard our culture then we will have pure love, then we'll have ultimate peace, and that all of our problems will go away. There is this prophecy in 2 Nephi 28 that is reminiscent of this process that we're seeing today as people blind themselves to the inescapable conflict that is sown into consciousness and into the world around us. We read, And others, Satan, will pacify, and lull them away into carnal security that they will say, All is well in Zion, yea, Zion prospereth, all is well. And thus the devil cheateth their souls, and leadeth them carefully down to hell. And behold, others he flattereth away, and telleth them that there is no hell. And he saith unto them, That I am no devil, for there is none. And thus he whispereth in their ears, until he grasps them with his awful chains, from whence there is no deliverance. The way I wanted to look at the idea of the war in heaven is to deny the conflict is the same thing as denying that there is a devil. Why is denying a war, denying the fundamental existence of conflict in the macrocosm and the microcosm of the world around us, to deny that is the same as denying that there is no Satan? And whenever you read those verses in Nephi, what you conclude is this ultimate, horrible, destructive naivety that we're seeing rampant in Western civilization today. It is that if we just discard our religious values, then all we'll have is good. That is a very bizarre conclusion to draw, and the only way you can draw that conclusion is by denying that there is evil in the world. So the idea is, okay, well, religion, let's just get rid of the whole idea of good. If we can just destroy the concept of good, then there really won't be a standard of evil, and then there will be nothing, like I said before, sunshine, rainbows, unicorns, lollipops, and pixie dust. However, what our forefathers would warn us and say, if you discard this, rather than seeing nothing but endless good, what we will see is we will be overrun by sinister forces at play. So you can see this taking place at your in your own life as an individual. If you discard all virtue, if you discard all of your ideals, all of the things that you hold valuable, your culture, then what usually will happen is there will be this possession of immoral forces, not amoral. Amoral meaning without, immoral meaning more of a downward direction. So what does it mean that there is war in heaven? It means that there are forces in the world that are bent on your destruction. There are forces in the world that are bent on your destruction. Those forces exist in the world as we know it today, that there are individuals, there are groups, there are cultures. Who would like nothing better than for you and your world and your civilization and your peace and your faith to be destroyed? that is true and that exists and that is one of the fundamental reasons why we have war in heaven. But when I'm looking at the idea of war in heaven as well from a more spiritual or psychological domain, it would be the suggestion that within you, within your consciousness and your experience is that force which is bent on your own destruction. You could label this the flesh. We know well that if one were to just give themselves wholly to the ideology that is programmed biologically within your flesh, that basically civilization itself would cease, and we would all be dead. So this is one of the manifestations of that war and that conflict, that there is a force within us that is bent on our own destruction and the destruction of our culture that exists there. However, I often look at the flesh with some degree of compassion, as if it were an animal, there is also that within us that is more sinister, that is more malevolent, that has a more satanic spin to it. And those um, that draw towards hatred, that draw towards ire, towards evil, towards violence, all of those things that we would associate with the devil, lying, deception, wickedness, evil that that is sown within your being as well. And a denial of that leaves yourself vulnerable to it. There is a verse in the New Testament, specifically in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11, it reads, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Being left ignorant to Satan's devices is my definition of naivety that I have been using here. And it is something that we are facing quite a bit within our world today and is part of the conflict and the war that we are experiencing. And so when we return to the idea of war in heaven, the reason why fundamentally our consciousness is in a warlike state is because we have values. And if there are values, then there is that force within us that exists in us as well as outside of us in the world that is bent on destroying the values that we hold dear. And it will come at you ferociously, it will come at you violently, and you will have to react to that. I know it would be very nice for us to imagine that we would all be like the anti-Nephi-Lehi's where we can just bury our weapons and in a grand act of peaceful martyrdom allow ourselves to be taken. Though there may be some application for that, we often forget the common hymn, Onward Christian Soldier, the notion that the values and things that we hold dear will be attacked, that there will be those who will attack and try to destroy those things that we hold to be valuable. And how are you going to react to that? Would you be willing to die for those things that are valuable? Would you be willing to fight for those things? At what point... Will you stand up and say no? Will you say no to those forces that are bent on your destruction? In the psychological setting, we often, you'd see this language called integrating one's shadow, uh, assertiveness training. It is one of the ways of conceptualizing how to integrate one's shadow is to answer the question of what does no mean? What does no mean for you when you tell somebody no? How far are you willing to go there? The reality is, if you're a human being, based off of the, um, the the whole entire of human history, that no eventually means war. It means that if I truly believe what I believe in, when I say no, this will not be allowed, that it ultimately means I will go to war over this. Now, obviously, there's different levels of conflict. It doesn't mean that you go pull out a nuke over every minor infraction, but it it's very significant for us to go through these things for ourselves as we're trying to understand, A, what our values are, and 2, how much they truly mean to us and, and how we integrate that into our lives. If this truly has value, is it possible that there are things in life that are so valuable that they transcend human life? Not in a murderous sense, but in the sense of protecting so this is actually going to give you a lot of, of a segue into the next section on the Book of Mormon, which has a significant amount of war in there, and it's a way of actually trying to answer some of these deep questions of conflict. You've heard me say this so many times on this episode, so I'm saying it over and over and over again just to drive that in, that this is a fundamental component of reality, and if you deny that, you do that to your own destruction. So if we have this fundamental state of war, then how do we proceed forth in that, and, and how is this going to play out in life? And so the Book of Mormon gives more shape to answering that question as we see things like Moroni and Mormon, these individuals who are willing to fight and go to war protect things that are most valuable. Their family, their lives, and their religion. That fighting for those things, it was worth sacrificing your life for. Ultimately, it was worth sacrificing everything for. In no way am I advocating an aggressive type of warfare. And if you look at how culture has evolved from a Christian foundation, you can look at how that really hasn't been the case that as a result of having a Christian foundation, that we've been able to establish, I believe, some of the most peaceful civilizations that we at least are aware of in all of history, that I'm aware of in all of history. So to summarize the general issue at large, in as much as value exists, there will be conflict. That's that's probably the simplest way of putting it. In as much as value exists, there will be conflict that ensues and the reason is is values compete with one another and that competition is is being conflated with conflict and in the most dramatic way you would conflate those ideas to be representative of warfare which is why i state like i'm i'm not advocating all out brutal violent war i'm using war more so as an analogy of conflict and if you remember the word polimos, which we looked at, that word can represent anything on that spectrum. So it depends on which direction you want to conflate things. Do you want to minimize the degree of conflict or do you want to maximize it? Just noting that in as much as we have values, that creates a competitive field and these values are going to collide with one another and that produces the conflict. The, o- the other idea is that humans cannot separate themselves from the process of valuing things. We, As human beings, we apply value to things. We apply symbolism and meaning into the world, the materialistic world that we experience. Those who say and propose that we should just delete all of our valuing of things, all of our applying meaning behind the materials that we encounter in this life, those that suggest that we do that one i think that they err in the sense that i don't even think that's possible because even those who propose to have accomplished that they still have a tremendous amount of meaning though it's it's kind of similar to the atheistic belief system they they say in their words and as they describe their philosophy they describe a world that is void of meaning void of a god and any sort of that symbolism yet what they end up doing is they recreate god and symbolism and meaning in all of their actions so it's it's mostly in the observation of how people who purport to delete meaning from their existence how they actually carry on their lives forward it's actually a, a life rich with symbol and meaning and and all of these faith-based systems that are created in the standard religious Theology you'll see in an atheistic theology as well You know in my studies of Buddhism. There's a lot in there describing things metaphysically of being able to you know delete the Maya and Maya is kind of like a veil around us and the veil around us is the false meaning that we have applied to the world which is a really really beautiful and awesome truism because in many ways, we have applied false meaning to the world. The meaning that we have applied to the world, there's degrees of corruption in that. But it's a it's a difference in direction. See, one direction says, and this would be more so the Christian direction, it says there is falsity in our perspective. Because of our imperfection, our view is corrupted. We see through a glass darkly. I believe that's in Romans, and we only see in part. Because of the veil, again, we are limited in being able to assess things accurately and in their full grandeur and splendor. So as a result of that, we have these really harsh limits placed on our perspective. But the Christian theology says, as we proceed forward in time, as we struggle, that's what Israel means, as we struggle forward, we will get closer and closer and closer to seeing things as they really are, seeing things in full, seeing things in the grandeur and splendor that actually is there. And that's an a arduous path upwards against the gravity of the world that we struggle day in and day out, civilization by civilization, age after age, trying to get closer and closer and closer to the truth. Whereas, and this is kind of a very brief paraphrasing, Buddhism is very complex, but it's more so a deletion. We're going to delete all the meaning. And once you've deleted all of the meaning around you, then as a result of that, all true meaning will just manifest itself. And that's the in the nirvana experience. So, and and I don't want to really, that that's... That would deserve its own podcast and looking at some of the comparison and contrast between Buddhism and that's an oversimplification of Buddhism because because the the best way to actually portray Buddhism is that they are really trying to focus more on deleting all of the selfish, prideful, um, corruptible things in life and as you do that you're going to bring yourself closer to the divine. A divine, and they wouldn't use the term divine, but I will use that term, that divine revelation of things as they are. So there's there's probably a lot more commonality behind those two perspectives. So, as you can tell, I'm very easy to to get derailed. We were going over the summary. Values exist, and that was what I was. The reason I got off on the tangent is I was expressing that individuals and human beings cannot that's a strong word, and I know exactly what I'm meaning when I say that human beings cannot separate themselves from the process of applying um, values to the materialistic world. That is inevitable. Therefore, the conflicts that we're going to run into are inevitable. And where I ended off was this notion of, well, then, if that conflict is inevitable, one of the main questions is, is how do we proceed in these conflicts? Because If we just allow the natural man to take over, it will actually not make things more peaceful, it will make things more in a violent warfare. And that's one of the things that Christianity has been struggling to escape. And what I pointed out in a very, just this is one of those grounding realistic terms, is that we haven't fully escaped that, though we truly want peace. Though we've been able to accomplish a pretty incredible society in America and a lot of Western civilization where we've expressed an extreme amount of tolerance to other people and to believe what they want to believe and that we can still have some degree of peace there, though we've been able to accomplish that, there still, is, there still are forces out there that would want nothing more than to destroy that peace. And so you have to understand that. We cannot be naive to that because the naivety of that idea has these very dire consequences. There are forces like communist Russia in the early 1900s, Germany and the Nazis. We have North Korea today. There are also other forces and countries out there who legitimately want nothing more than our destruction. And if you were unwilling to stand for what you believed in, then what would happen is Before you know it, North Korea is in your backyard, and before you know it, you're enslaved to a tyrannical tyrannical government. And, as you'll hear me say this over and over and over again, every time I look at examples in history and in the real world, in a large scale, I truly do believe that you can then apply that and say that that exists in the grand community of the psyche that exist in your own mind. So there are forces that exist within you that would want nothing more than to enslave you, that would take things over if they were given a chance. This is described as, in some of the psychological literature, as the shadow in all men. It must be checked, it must be watched, and in many times that there will be serious conflict and serious battle with those parts of us. And in many cases, what you'll see And I would say I see this on a daily if not weekly basis as you're actually talking with people struggling through psychiatric and mental health problems. It's very common that that tyranny that they are feeling within themselves is very real. Things have been taken over. They were never adequately taught how to proceed forth in warfare. They were never taught to be strong, to stand for the things that they wanted. And so as a result of that, that lack of conviction, there's in many cases, you could say that shadow is able to take over and the more base parts of them and those that are also expressed in the outside world are able to take over them because not always is it just this internal idea that has this very captivating, enslaving power to it. It can even just be in something like a relationship, a real relationship in the outside world. You know, even as I was recording this, that this very day um, in terms of people that I was talking with, I had three people today. So when you see about say 10 people, that's 25, 30% of your um, 25 to 30% of the people I saw today. These were the quotes and I wrote them down. I'm too nice and this gets me into trouble. It's difficult for me to set boundaries. Those phrases are not uncommon to hear. And so you know, when you take what's going on in these situations, I'm too nice and it's difficult to set boundaries. It is this counter principle of of basically holding a line of justice. And here we go, and this was the, and, and I won't have time to go into this. I don't know if I could <laughs> if I don't know if I could adequately ex- articulate and express the the complexity of that relationship between justice and mercy, but there is, this complex relationship between justice and mercy. It kind of operates very much like the Taoist yin and yang, where they're kind of in this constant motion with one another, and there's times where you need to express a little bit more justice, and there's times where you need to express a little bit more mercy. But we have encountered in many cases, I think, um, a stronger Ziki spirit of our times, where a lot of people in Western civilization nowadays, in in many cases, are seems strange to say this, but overly merciful, they are too nice, they're unwilling to stand for truth. And then as a result of this, we're starting to see the adversary and these more base forces start to rise higher and higher and higher to the surface. And as they continue to grow in strength and in power, it's actually moving us closer and closer and closer to an impending conflict that ultimately may look something like warfare. So I want you to consider this general topic of that war in heaven and, and what we've discussed in the light with these other verses that we'll see in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 12, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth he hath but a short time. And this is also found in verse 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman. The woman in this case being a symbol of the church. So the dragon Satan was wroth and angry with the church and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is why I've been so direct about the imagery of warfare. We cannot be naive. We've already lost far too many people because of their naivety, because they do not believe in the reality of the conflict that we're facing. And there have been many casualties in this war, too many, far too many casualties. So we need to approach the reality of the world in which we live with absolute seriousness. Revelation 14.5, it expresses, And in their mouth was found no guile. Um, The word guile meaning deceit. There is no deceit, there is no deception in this reality. We speak this honestly and openly when we discuss the the difficult world in which we live in. Though we have a tremendous amount of peace due to an incredible foundation of faith, there still is much, much work to be done, and there still is a terrible conflict in which we are engaged in, and perhaps ever will be, so long as we are kept captive in this mortal life. Because we have to realize that this is the plan of God. Part of God's plan for us here on earth is to prove us. We will prove them now herewith. It is to test us. It is to test us to see what we will choose, who we will choose to follow, which side of the battle we will end up fighting for. This is one of the great tests in life, if not the great test in life. So that's why we ponder and ask the question, which side of the battle will you be found on who will you be willing to live your life for who will you be willing to give your life for now this is also expressed in revelation chapter 13 verse 4 it's a very obscure verse but it's it's pretty interesting the principle that it's conveying it says and they worshiped the dragon which gave power unto the beast the verse continues but that's really the 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 only part that i want to focus on now, of course, I gave you no context for this. Um, dragon and beast; these are basically representations of evil forces. These could be a leader or the heads of some sort of organization or a specific person, but ultimately, they're symbols of some sort of great evil in the world. And the beast and the dragon have a um, have a relationship with one another. The beast would be kind of at the very head of everything. That is the worst, and the dragon was like a subsidiary to this, okay? So with that in mind, I'll read it one more time. So they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. Now, the reason I really like this verse is because it actually, in, in a deep philosophical way, it describes one of the things that worship does. Worship, when you worship something, an idea, whatever that idea may be, what it's doing is is it's giving power to that idea. It's a really cool way of looking at worship is, it's actually something that people outside of a church perspective would look at our worship. They would say, look, you have all these religious systems, you have your rituals, you have your daily prayer, your daily scripture, and as you're doing all those things, all you are is reinforcing those ideas so that they get stronger and stronger and stronger and you can't break yourself from them which in a lot of ways is true. That's what we're trying to do. We found something that we believe is sacred and holy, and we want to show reverence towards that. We want to actually increase our value of those things. And, and that is the, one of the great religious processes. Um, and again, if you're looking at this in terms of like a psychiatric, this happens all the time because people will say, there are things that I do value tremendously yet when i try to play them out in the real world they don't manifest as my highest value my family is what's most important to me however at this point in my life alcohol keeps taking the the prize it keeps being valued as the highest thing and i make these decisions in my life that are are causing a lot of internal dissonance and conflict within myself because my family should be more important and i want to be able to stop Drinking alcohol or smoking or pornography or whatever the behavior could be again. What it's just representing is internally they have this value system and and something at the top of that is Not necessarily what they want to be and how do you actually? um, Override that how do you actually supplant that thing which has taken over? Has the highest value and put something up higher on it as you worship something you're actually giving that idea, more power, and that works in any direction. And that's why this is cool. So Revelation 13, 4, and they worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. So this in a negative sense. And so this you'll see in a lot of the atheistic religions um, as they as they perform their rituals. And what is worship? Because when you look at the the broad teaching of worship in a Christian setting, you find out that basically any action could be a display of worship. Prayer can be a very formal way of doing that, but going and knocking on doors and preaching the gospel is another way of expressing your worship. Altering your speech in a particular way is a form of worship. You know, any one of these conscious activities that you're doing that's aimed towards God can be an expression of worship, and as you do that what you're doing is you're reinforcing the idea. You're playing that out in the real world, and it gives more and more power unto God in this sense. If you were doing this in a righteous setting. Inasmuch as you worship God, it gives power to God. And, well, you'd say, well, God's all-powerful. Why does he need that? Well, it's more, that's why I take this in more of a psychological setting, is you are trying to put God first in your world, in your life. And how do you do that? You have to, as you worship him, you give his ideas and his teachings more and more power within you to be able to rule and reign, and eventually establish justice and peace within yourself. So it's a really, really interesting and powerful principle that's in there, tucked away, lost in the Book of Revelation with all of its um, difficult imagery. But it it does look at, it does allow us to look a lot in our own lives and say, well, in what ways am I expressing and worshipping the dragon? You know, am I doing this by? Watching way too much television getting involved too much in media doing things in my own speech and language and as much as I'm doing that I'm giving power unto the beast ultimately what this does it actually is it it puts you into a world where Everything that you do actually matters and has meaning because everything you do in life with with some degree of intent is going to build and reinforce a particular set of presuppositions and a particular set of ideas. And you have to be very, very aware and cautious about what ideas you're feeding power to. And so a lot of this could be what we would label unconscious. You may not be completely aware of what these forces are and what their ultimate aim is, but they exist in you. And that, again, is all part of this opposition in all things and conflict in the world. Remember that one revelation? 13.4, as we return to the idea of how do you proceed in this warfare, I want to focus on that really powerful verse at the conclusion of the war in heaven in Revelation 12 verse 11, it states, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death, which is why I was using a lot of this dramatic language, what would you be willing to die for? because in this idea here, they overcame the dragon, they overcame the devil, because their faith was stronger than death. Now, in most people's lives, that's not going to be as relevant, at least at this point in our lives. You know, we're not asked to go out in literal warfare and potentially sacrifice everything. So, when I rephrase the question, I'd be saying not only what would you die for, but also what are you willing to live for? What things in life are most meaningful? Where Where is the anchor of your testimony? What things within you, values within you, are the strongest you believe in the very most? Because in order to truly combat the adversary, one, knowing that the the struggle is real, the war is real in the world and within ourselves, that because that is real, it's going to take a tremendous amount of force counterforce to actually meet the adversary and overcome him. So your testimony in the Lord Jesus Christ needs to be strong, perhaps strong enough to override life and death itself and over to overcome the the adversary, which is real. Another verse in Revelation 14, 4, describing the degree of faith that exists in those who are able to overcome the devil, it states... These are they which followeth the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. To what degree is your conviction in the Lord Jesus Christ? How far are you willing to follow him? How deep is that testimony? It may not be as deep as you want, which is why you go back into that Revelation 13.4 and then you go back to the basics of worship and you find these ways of growing and expanding that idea, increasing your faith as it were. You increase your faith as you do more and more work. That will cultivate and it will nourish that belief in you until it grows and grows strong enough to the point that you can overcome the adversary, to the point that you can be considered, as it says in Revelation 17.4, you can be considered one who is called, chosen, and faithful. It states in Revelation 17.7, these shall make war with the lamb. Again, pointing out that there are forces out there that, are, that truly want to overcome the work of righteousness. These will make war with the Lamb, and they will make war with you as well. But the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Ultimately, that which overcomes the adversary is the power of Christ. Your faith in Christ will be able to call upon that power that power which exists within us that can overcome the adversary much like in my previous podcast where we discussed the notion of God as the faithful witness we have in Revelation chapter 19 verse 11 these descriptions of the Savior Jesus Christ and I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness He doth judge and make war. The Lord Jesus Christ is faithful. The Lord Jesus Christ is he that was willing to, in a sense, go to war. That he doth judge and make war. He went to war against the adversary. He went to war against the great accuser of us. He went to war against that thing within us that's constantly telling you that you are not good enough, that you are inadequate, and that you are beyond repair. Here are all of your faults. But Jesus Christ was faithful and true. And in his warfare, the testimony that he had, his belief in us as humanity, his belief in, in us that we can also be able to accomplish something good, that there is a tremendous good in us worth dying for, that conviction, that faith that he had, his his ability to hold Faithful to that is what gives him that title of being faithful and true. He did not waver. He did not falter. He proceeded forward in righteousness. His judgment was clear. His direction was focused and unbending. And in that focus and design to save all of humanity and redeem all of humanity... He did not waver in the slightest, and as a result of that, he was able to overcome the adversary. And because the Lord was faithful and true, might all exclaim with the righteous hosts, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is to come, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord God for true and righteous are his judgments. I pray that such praise and adoration for the Lord Jesus Christ will ever be in us, that we will ever rejoice in the great triumph that has come through the Lord Jesus Christ, the great triumphs that have come in the past and the triumphs that will come in the future, in your future, as we have faith in the Lord God omnipotent, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who I testify truly is the Son of God who truly is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, and he who hath prevailed. I testify of him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Your support for this podcast is greatly appreciated. Thank you. You can support this podcast by purchasing one of my books, The Divine Nature or His Voice, The Teachings of the Old and New Testament. These books can be purchased on Amazon or by visiting my website, www.unfoldingthescriptures.com. Thank you and God bless.